Romans chapter 8, 13 to 17. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that he may also be glorified with him. I should have done that, shouldn't I really? I got mixed up. Sorry. There we go. I forgot to press the button. This has got to be one of the most, for me, uh, beautiful and richest passages in Scripture because it speaks of our relationship with God, how we relate to God, how God relates to us. Now, the word adoption needs our attention uh, just for a few moments. A simple definition of adoption is a legal action whereby a person is taken into a family, usually not in any way related to him. And when taken into that family, he is then given the rights and privileges of the members as a member of that family. That's the technical term. Uh, Just to uh, deal with one issue right at the very beginning, uh, the current issue of... um, uh, of, of being uh, sexual equality uh, within the church. And that is that actually I now need to refer to anything in the Romans chapter 8 as sons and daughters. Can I just say that sexual equality cannot work in this scripture? That it is theologically incorrect to refer to daughters at this point. The reason being is that if you are a son, you are an heir. If you are daughter, you are not. And for you to say that this is sons and daughters would actually say you have no inheritance. Actually, girls, you are a son. You are as much right to be as a son as the bloke sitting next to you because when you are called into the kingdom of God, you are called to be an heir. And that's the point. We mustn't do the sexual equality thing against biblical because there's a biblical point to it. You are all sons. You will all be heirs. So that's got the theological bit out. Let's just go a track through this and read some scriptures. Let's go back to uh, the adoption in the Old Testament and first look at Moses. We're just going to read the story. The story speaks for itself. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and she daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it 
and placed it amongst the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while a young women walked beside, uh, walked beside the river. She saw the basket amongst the reeds and sent a servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said, Go. So the child went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. That's extraordinary, isn't it? So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him into Pharaoh's daughter. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now hear this. Moses was adopted by, was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. It was God's plan through adoption to put Moses into a strategic place. Hear that? Hear it? Hold on to it. Esther. Esther chapter 2, verses 5 and 7. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem amongst the captives, uh, amongst the captives carried away with Jeconi, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Here again, God has an adoption plan. It's strategic in time and in history. First of all, Moses adopted by Pharaoh's daughter in order that he might be placed strategically to deliver Israel. Here again, Esther marvelously adopted into Mordecai's family that she too might be a deliverer of Israel. It was indeed strategic. Think about this. It was strategic because that she was going to live in a pagan nation. She was adopted into a family and taken into a pagan nation so that she might become a deliverer. It's extraordinary. 
Are you beginning to see this thing widening up more than strategic in history that she was chosen not only uh, because of the family wanted to do it, but because there was a purpose and there was a destiny behind these adoptions. Moses placed, Esther placed, strategic into nations, into places for purpose and for destiny. I actually think that this is the one of the most tenderest and lovely adoption stories of all scripture. Found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And if we stop for a few moments, we can get a glimpse or even a foreshadow or a developing foreshadow of something that's to come. So 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lo-Debar. Here's the enemy, Saul, and here's a relation to Saul who is part of the enemy. He's crippled. He is the enemy. He's crippled. He's not anyone who would carry weight in the new society. He lives in a place called Lodabar, which means barren land. He is an insignificant man in an insignificant place. And the enemy. Verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephizetheth, him, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And, and David said, Oi. The ones with the Bible open would have got that. The ones not looking at Scripture would not have got that whatsoever. And may the Lord judge you with lightning bolts from heaven. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore you to the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table. Always. And he paid homage and he said, what is, it, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Now, catch a little bit of the developing story. As a dead dog as I. Should somebody love me because this is the way that I think about me? The story continues. Verse 9. The king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, All that belong to Saul 
and to all this house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce. And your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Bill, your master's grandson, (laughs) shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Bill ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Bill had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Bill's servants. So Bill lived in Jerusalem. For he ate always with the king ta- table. Now he was lame with both feet. Okay, so we've looked at Moses and we've looked at uh, Esther and now we've got Mephib Osheth. Right, let's try and explain this then. A dead dog is how he sees himself. He's living in a culture where they throw out people that are disabled. Now he's eating at the king's table. So first we see adoption as God's plan. Then we see strategic in history. Then it has purpose and destiny in where it places you. Now it also adds to it an adoption of grace and mercy and love and kindness. The picture goes on. How about if we take some of these things about Bill? David took the initiative in adopting Mephibosheth. God takes the initiative in adopting us. David shows mercy to one that was completely unworthy. The one who has descended from an enemy. We were God's enemies and we become his friends. David is motivated by love for Jonathan. In our case, God is motivated by love for his son and in whom his son now lives. David showed extravagant kindness towards somebody that does not deserve it. In 2 Corinthians, we are shown the riches of his grace and his kindness. See, the New Testament's not an accident, is it? It's just a magnificent flow on from the Old Testament. David chose the one who was not perfect. And so God chooses the ones who live outside of his standards. Mephibosheth means you shameful thing. Fancy calling your child that. You shameful thing. Maybe you might have said that in anger. But you haven't changed the name of your children. So here's this person known as you shameful thing. Where does he live? In the barren land. Low Debar. Literally, no pasture. Who is this guy? He's a nobody from nowhere. Extraordinary. Can you see the picture unfolding in regard to this wonderful spirit of adoption? The climax, David says, come and eat at my table. 
Where will you eat, guys? <laughs> the Lord will bring you to eat at his banqueting table. David says to him, I will give you inheritance. You will have the riches of heaven at your disposal. <laughs> the Old Testament is wonderful. How it unfolds this, some, this wonderful new covenant that will be ushered in by Jesus. So let's set the scene then and race through Romans 8 in just a few statements. Hear the understanding of the position of a son. The key to understanding Romans chapter 8 is the famous, there is therefore no condemnation. It finishes with verse 34. Who is it that condemns? The whole ethos of being part of the Christian faith is that you are not condemned. That's what the Romans 8 is all about. By that, what we mean is that we will never finally be punished for our sins. We will never have to pay the penalty for sin. It has already been paid and the condemnation has been placed upon him. And the Apostle Paul goes on to demonstrate what that no condemnation sense looks like and feels like. And explains that it is a work of the Spirit for us to experience this. For it to be confirmed in our hearts, for it to affect us. He says, even in Romans chapter 8, that it is to do with our security. The biggest problem that we have with Christians today is what they feel. And we need to battle with that because what we feel is irrelevant. What we are should, do, do, should affect what we feel. That's why, even in that argument, Paul is writing and saying, who will separate us from the love of God? Well, me wart did. Separated. I got a wart not coming to church any longer. It's true. Could be you. Have wart, no church. No love Jesus anymore. The argument is, it's not just a theological argument. It has to be something that is deep within us. To affect us so that when anything hits us, we go, no, I know. How does that work then? How does that work? It works through a process that the Spirit does for us. And you can see that in Romans chapter 8, how the Spirit opens our position in Christ up as sons. So it starts in verse 2 and 3 and it says, this is what you need to know. Firstly, verse 2 and 3, you have been freed from sin and death. That's actually hurdle 1. You cannot get to hurdle 7, where we're going, until you know hurdle 1. Hurdle 1, you are free from sin and death. That's the hurdle 1. Hurdle 2, that means that he enables us to fulfill the law. The law is fulfilled in me. What? 
Years ago, the law could not be fulfilled. But because I'm in Christ, I am, I am clothed with his righteousness. I am seen extraordinarily as perfect. What? That's how I am seen. My sacrifices are accepted in heaven. Three, he changes our nature. The Spirit changes our nature, verses 5 to 11. Four, he empowers us to live victoriously. You see how these build? You can't get down to the bottom until you've dealt with the first one. You see how that works? Then he guarantees our glory. Six, he intercedes for us. And seven, he confirms us as adoption. Here's the problem. You want to know about adoption when actually you need to know the other things set you free and on a process to that. And that's the way that the Spirit works in us. And that's the way that Paul takes us through Romans chapter 8, explaining that it is a work of the Spirit that does this for us. That it is the Spirit of God that works in us, that, that sets us free from sin and death, and etc., etc. It's the work of the Spirit to secure for you, affirm, and confirm your no condemnation status. That's what he does. And he does that by giving you assurance. No, I am a child of God. I am a son of God. The spirit of adoption. It's the spirit that places us into his family by the miracle of adoption. So that's the work of the spirit. So then that's the I'm having a little bit of a theological blinder for a bit. Let's have a look at this. Because what we forget with, with this is that Paul's writing to the Romans. So he's writing to a particular culture. And if you think about it, if we just stand away from that, we've had the Old Testament patterns. And in those Old Testament patterns, we can see what becomes of something to us. But do you know, when Paul's writing about adoption, this society would have known about adoption better than any other society because they had passed laws in regard to adoption. They were advanced in the issue of adoption. So when Paul's writing this, he's writing knowing that they would know this. So the context is very important. So when you say the word adoption you can often think it's a second-class status thing. Well, you're not a real son. You're an adopted son. You're the one that's added onto the deal because nobody wanted you. You were the one in the line of the babies at the end. Somebody's got to have this one. But that's not true in regard to first-century Rome. In fact, it was the very opposite let me read you some quotes uh, 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 about Roman society. In Roman culture, if a father looked over his children, particularly his sons, and he didn't see amongst his sons that he'd brought into the world a son that he deemed to be worthy to inherit his name, his title, his offices, his estate, he would go outside and he would find such a worthy son. And he would adopt him into his family 
on the basis of his virtue, based upon the child's character, based upon the child's talent. And that adopted son would then take precedence over all the other sons who did not qualify at the level of qualification that the father had established. So an adopted son in Roman culture is not a waif picked up by the side of the street so that you can care for him and wield him out. No, an adopted son in the Roman system is a son who is chosen by the father, particularly for the purpose of inheriting the estate and bearing the name and the title that comes with the father. Extraordinary. The quote goes on. And so when it says in the Bible that we have become adopted sons, it is not right to think that God has scooped us off the street from somewhere so that he can care for us for a little while. It is that God has chosen us to bear his name and his title and inherit his state. This is what the theologians say. We are sovereignly chosen out of all the world. That's the essence of Paul's thought. We are preferred by God. We are the choice of his free involuntary election. And in no sense are we inferior. We have been chosen to bear his name, we have been chosen to inherit his kingdom. Extraordinary. Let me go and try and explain a little bit more, again, uh, quoting uh, from uh, some books that I have in regard to Roman history. In Roman culture, uh, it wasn't easy to do this because they had a thing called uh, patria uh, potestas, which meant the rule of the father. And as long as you were the son of your father or the daughter of your father, he had total control over your life until he died. And he could kill you if he wanted to kill you. And so if you were a man and were unsatisfied with the children that you had, you went over to some other family that you saw uh, in there, a person that you would want to adopt, and that you had to then go through a procedure to adopt that person into your family. And the system was called uh, Monsapito. And uh, the Monsapito is to try and emancipate, it's a legal system to emancipate one of the children from the control of another father. A legal system, think about this, a legal system that legally moves you from one family to another family. Heard that before? It is the doctrine of? Please, somebody fill Armin, fill in the gap. What's that the doctrine of? It's the doctrine of justification by faith. Isn't it? Built in by God into Roman society as a, as a demonstration of something 
it goes on. They had another thing called uh, vindicatio, which means that once the procedure had gone further, it went into a court of law and the gavel came down and you were declared to be a member of a new family. In a court of law, in regard to you and I, the gavel comes down and we are joined with the family because we are declared not guilty. Extraordinary. A court procedure where the person is transferred from another family to another. Only then could you bear the name of the title and the inherit the Father. So, now we're, we can see Paul's writing about something that is extraordinarily revealed by God in a culture. Let me, finish, let me carry on. Four things have to happen in Roman society so that you can adopt a child. The first thing that happens was that the adopted person lost all the relationship to its own family. Everything was gone. It gained all the rights of the new family. I am a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Paul's clever. No, actually, God is clever. Second... It followed that he became the heir to all the father's estate and even the other children who were blood-born did not affect these rights. He was the co-heir and received them above all other things. He became the unworthy heir. Thirdly, according to Roman law, the former life of the adopted person, as soon as they entered into this family, whatever misdemeanors, which may have included crimes, which may have included murder, were completely wiped out. Any financial debts were wiped out at this point and they were all legally cancelled. Crime, debt, misdemeanours, all gone. So when Paul's writing, you have been adopted, these Romans are going, what? You're just sitting there going, this is clever stuff. No, this is you guys. Does it not sound familiar, this? Fourth thing. In the eyes of the law, the adopted person was literally and absolutely the son of the father. And so when we're adopted to all these things, no doubt what was in mind of the apostle and the spirit was that the cord of the past is broken that we are co-heirs to God's kingdom and that we are legally and emotionally his sons. Extraordinary. So the passage, we've got to do this quick because I want to finish with one uh, which I think a remarkable thing. The passage says, 
that not only have we received adoption, that's the background, but that we've received a spirit of adoption. And uh, what it's really saying is that we're not, we're not just adopted. We're adopted, but the spirit confirms our adoption in our hearts. It's not just an objective thing, a legal thing. It's something also that works in us, that goes, I am a son of God. It is a sense of which you can know that you are a child of God. Now, I've had that said to me as arrogance. No, it's the work of the Spirit. It's not arrogance at all. It's what God does. God gives you assurance of your faith. So how does he do it, using the passage? First of all, it says that we're led by the Spirit. Verse 14, for as many who are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. The first mark of an adopted Spirit is that we're led by the Spirit. We're prompted by him. So you look at your life, and you should be able to see, guys, times when the Spirit has got hold of your life and led you. So he... Where's the Spirit leading you? What's he saying to you? What's he working on? Ah, oh, he's led me to the bakers in Morrison's for big cakes. No, it's not the Spirit. Because it's a Holy Spirit. You should be being led into holiness and purity and righteousness and not sin. That's where the Holy Spirit leads you. How is your sanctification coming along? How is your, how is your holy living doing? Not here. Not here. When I can't see you. How do I know it refers to that? Because verse 13 says, If you live according to the flesh, uh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit... But be, I'm sorry, but if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body and then you will live. If you're led by the Spirit, then you are a son of God. Or to reverse it, if you are a son of God, you'll be led by the Spirit. And if you're led by the Spirit, you will kill sin. That's the flow. Children of God kill sin. I'm led to kill it prompted by the spirit i'll deal with this i'll deal with this in my life i'll resource everything from god so that i can be holy and pure and pure second thing the spirit does in ministering to us is affirm our no condemnation status Verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption of sons by you. We cry, Abba, Father. <laughs> We've been adopted and the, and the spirit of God here helps us to cry out, Abba, Father. How do you know the spirit is working on you? First thing is there's a cry in your heart. Let me just say this. There isn't a silence in your heart. There's a cry. It's a deep thing that has to come. Something has to burst forth. It's true. 
It's a real test, guys. How do you test the Spirit of God? One, deal with sin. Two, cry out. The word is um, krazo. It's the Greek word. It means a loud cry of deep emotion. Spirit of God is on you, moving on you. Everything within you cries out. We're not Quakers. We're spirit-led people. We're actually charismatic people. We are moved by the Spirit. The Spirit of God comes upon me and helps me to be ponderous and silent. No, it doesn't. It's a deep cry within you. It's a good test, isn't it? How full am I? Dead to sin, crying out to God with everything within my emotion. It was interesting we had 10 weeping people today, didn't we? It was, you know, it was like nine lords of leaping, 10 weeping students. It was that sort of... But it was a sense, something deep within happened. We need to stop this British church stuff that says that we can stand on our chairs and be silent about it. This is not the work of the Spirit, folks. The work of the Spirit means that I will, something will come out within me. Streams of living waters, no, the occasional drip when I'm in a conference. No, come on. What does this mean? Thirdly, it means, and rather shockingly, that I cry out, Papa, Daddy, the most intimate of statements. Do you know, to the average Jew, they would have got angry at this point because how dare we stand in the holy of holies amongst the most awesome God, the most powerful God, the most incredible God, and cry, Abba, Father. But that's what the Spirit wants you to do. He wants to take you into the presence of God so that you look up and you go, my Father. That's the work of the Spirit. It's a word of dependence. It's a work of... Isn't it? Do you, Dad? Don't you cry, Daddy? When my kids have fallen over... They haven't got, oh, Father, (laughs) Father, there's blood coming from my knee. Wouldst thou come nither and and attendeth to my knee? They cry out, Dad, don't they? It's a word of intimacy. I've got to walk up the emotional aisle with my daughter in just a few weeks' time. It's going to be... Oh, it's, it's worse, it's going to be worse than the Titanic. I just. <laughs> you know what she's saying to me? On the night before we get married, can we watch that Steve Martin program, The Father of the. No, we're not going to watch that. It's. And she's not going to say, no, no, Father, no, Father. Let us walk together down the church here for the last time before you hand me over to Timothy, funny named Harmon. (laughs) What's his middle name? James Philip. 
Oh, he got the normal one, did he? The rest of them all got the strange ones, didn't they? So, well, it, isn't, it isn't like that, is it? It just isn't. It's the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit. He comes upon us. And, and we want to have, we want to be intimate with this God that is no ours. It's just wonderful. It's a tender word. It's a love word. It's a personal word. It's why Jesus was able to say, Father, he wasn't going, awesome God, almighty, please remove this cup from me in the garden of Gethsemane. He, he said, it's Father, Father, your Son, if you could, could you remove this? The relationship was such. The last thought, and to wrap this up, is verse 16. I love this for a theological quirk. And I'm going to finish on it. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Do you know, (laughs) in Roman society, you think about this, some pagan society on the face of this earth that was rotten and corrupt to the core suddenly writes down, if you you want to adopt somebody, you've got to have seven character witnesses. You need seven. And they're going to stand up in court for you and they're going to testify that you are worthy for, to have this son of, that you think that you should have. You need seven witnesses. Don't you need somebody to witness to you that you, you, that you are a son of God? I would suggest that, boy, you do. You need a witness because I know what you're like, because I know what I'm like. You go sometimes, do I belong to God? No, look, look at the way that I speak, look at the way that I am, look at what I do. Don't kid yourself, Nigel. You have no right to be preaching. You have no right to lead a church. You have no right to even be a Christian. You don't have any rights, really, to inherit God's throne. Who do you think you are? And you're all out saying, no, I never have those thoughts. Not me. How many times do I think, my goodness me, why did I do that? You look at the sin in your life and you go, no. You constantly say, I am a mess. The work of the Spirit is to come alongside you and to witness to your spirit. No, you are my son. It's how it works. Spirit comes and said, let me argue that with you. Here's the deal. <laughs> you can't win. <laughs> you just can't win. Let's just do this. Let, let's just try this. In the red corner, coming out fighting, <laughs> is the right reverend Nigel Lloyd. In the blue corner is the Holy Spirit. Bong! Come on! It's, it's just going to be a one-punch fight. Why don't you let the Spirit of God fall upon you? 
Why are you resisting? He wants to say to you, you are my son. And you're going, I'll resist this. My anger is bigger than this. And we have these ministry times that you can feel it. There's the white knuckle riding ones. I am not ever coming forward. (laughs) Never. Not in this meeting. What does the spirit want to do? He wants to say to you, you are my son. Why would you not want to come forward? The spirit wants to come alongside you and say, hey, you're my son and I love you. No! <laughs> it's the work of the, you're resisting the spirit. I'm going to do the technical thing. Phil Harmon will wet himself with delight. Please fit anything that will stop him going to the toilet badly. Here comes the theological thing. He's going to love this. I will. Are you ready? Remember the sevenfold witness. Remember that. Remember that it was in Roman society and Paul was writing it. Let me take you to Isaiah. Way, way, way back in the Old Testament. Way, way back. And Isaiah explains Jesus. And in prophesying about Jesus, he explains not only the work of Jesus, but the work of the Spirit that he would leave when Jesus has left. Okay? Here it is. Pagans go for seven witnesses. The Lord prophesies thousands of years. And he says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And the spirit and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding and the spirit of counsel and the spirit of might and the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Seven witnesses to come alongside you and say, and what does he say? And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And what shall he do? He shall not judge by what his eyes see. My goodness. No, I'm not coming. For flipping heck's sake, come and get it done with. Who sticks up for you? Why is the character of the person that wants to come inside you? Who wants to testify you? You stand in this corner, in this court of law, this Roman construction, and the Spirit of the Lord says, I will. The Spirit of wisdom says, I will. The Spirit of understanding says, I will. The Spirit of counsel says, I will. The Spirit of the might says, I will. The Spirit of knowledge says, I will. And the Spirit of fear says, I will. How much more do you want? And what does he say to you? He comes gently alongside to you and he says, You are my son. I love you. That's not technical, is it? It's just wonderful. He brings the army and they all say, Yep. This is his son. 